Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday as well as upload the YouTube video version on Wednesdays as well and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, you guys, for today's case, today's case is quite different from the ones that we have done in the past. And personally, I was most intrigued to talk about this case today because even though it is a little bit on the shorter side of the cases that we usually cover, this is the type of case that is going to make you think. This is the type of case that you are going to be questioning. You are going to have to rack your brain a little bit to figure out where you lie in terms of the conclusion conclusion of this case. And that's really why I wanted to bring this to you today, because when I first heard about this case, it definitely took me by surprise and made me think about what I truly believe by the end of it. So as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the solved murder of Sharon Lapotka. So let's jump right on into it today. Sharon Denberg, which was her maiden name, was born on September 20th, 1961 to her parents, Abraham and Magda. Now, Sharon was the first of four daughters born into her Orthodox Jewish family, and all members of Sharon's family were members of Baltimore's largest Orthodox Jewish synagogue. Abraham was actually the cantor at the synagogue, and the cantor is the person who leads people throughout the service. Sharon and her sisters were born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, and according to everyone who knew Sharon, Sharon is what is described as as normal as normal can be. That was actually a direct quote from someone who grew up with Sharon. She was in the school choir. She played on different sports teams like field hockey and volleyball. She graduated from Pikeville High School in 1979 and went on to marry a construction worker named Victor Lapotka. Now, Sharon and Victor got married in Elliott City, Maryland in 1991, and afterwards, she moved with him to his ranch house in Hampstead, Maryland. Now, Sharon's marriage to Victor definitely created a riff in her relationship with her parents. Victor had grown up Catholic, and like I mentioned, Sharon grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family, and because of this, Sharon's parents really did not approve of this marriage. However, even though there's no direct evidence of this from all of the research and all of the articles, how it appeared was that Sharon and her parents had an ongoing strain in their relationship, which we will also touch on as we continue. However, the strain in their relationship did not seem to be caused by Sharon's marriage to Victor. However, it seemed to be the catalyst for them completely cutting ties with each other. Sharon knew that her parents were not happy with the decisions that she was making when it came to her relationship. However, she did not 
care. Sharon always felt like her life was very average. She felt like she was very normal. She always followed the rules. She always did what everyone, including her parents, had asked her to do. However, her relationship and her marriage to Victor was the first thing that she felt like she was doing for herself. And the fact that she was rebelling against her parents almost made it a little bit better for Sharon because she wanted a reason to get away from them. So like I mentioned, Victor was a construction worker. He had his day job. He was gone for multiple hours throughout the day, long shifts. He was a very hard worker. But at the time, Sharon did not have a career or something that would take up her time during the day. So because of this, Sharon started to venture into creating some online businesses to have a little side hustle for some extra cash here and there. And she actually created multiple businesses through this. Her first business was called House of Dion, where she sold home decor guides for $7 a piece. The ad on the website for House of Dion actually read, quote, home decorating secrets seen in the posh homes from the New England states to the Hollywood homes now can be yours, never published before. Quick, easy ways to decorate your home end quote. So she was selling these packets, these little guides to people for $7 a piece. That was her first business. Then she moved on to creating another online business called Classified Concepts, where she wrote ad copies for advertisers and charged them $40 per ad. After Classified Concepts, Sharon moved on to advertise herself as a psychic on multiple different websites and charged people for readings and advice. Now, there's no evidence to ever prove that Sharon believed that she had psychic abilities before this business venture. However, this was also something that she dabbled in. Now, along with her psychic business, she also worked on a 1-900 number. Now, if you don't know what a 1-900 number is, it essentially is a phone sex hotline. And so Sharon would work as a phone sex worker on these hotlines and she would charge people for that as well. So she was finding lots of different ways to venture out and make some money on her own, as well as fill up her time during the day. Now, it should be stated that it was never clear how much Victor knew about Sharon's online activity and about her online businesses. That was never made clear. However, Sharon did definitely do her fair share of business entrepreneurship on her own. So that was the first sector of Sharon's online businesses. That was the first half of it. Now we move into the parts that tend to be a little bit more disturbing. Now, one of the more disturbing and frankly, just outright disgusting ways that Sharon attempted to make money was by advertising videos of women who were unconscious, whether that be from being drugged or chloroformed or hypnotized, having sex. So essentially advertising to to sell videos of women who were being raped or sexually assaulted. Now, it should be mentioned that it was never clear whether or not she ever sold any of these videos or how she was planning on getting possession of them or if she did have possession of them in the first place. However, this was one of the services that she was advertising. So even though we're not clear whether or not she actually ever went through with it, that was something that she was advertising to people for money. 
Along with that, Sharon was also advertising and hoping to sell her underwear online. And whenever she was not working one of her side hustles, one of the things that Sharon found herself doing was finding herself in different pornographic fetish chat rooms. And I think I need to make it very clear even though I feel like the community that we have here, I feel like you understand where I'm coming from with this. However, I think it is important to mention that what we are talking about today is exploring and talking about the fetish community, the BDSM community, things of that nature. And while we are discussing that, unfortunately in this circumstance in a negative light that no way affects or defines that community as a whole and even though i feel like we all understand that here because this is just one of those cases I, I think it should be mentioned as well. So I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there because we are discussing that today. Now, as I mentioned, Sharon found herself in a lot of fetish chat rooms, pornographic chat rooms. Some of her favorites to visit were sexbondage.com and fetishfeet.com. And Sharon was able to really use these chat rooms as a way to escape and a way to become who she wanted to be and fantasize. She was creating alter egos and different characters. Some days she would portray herself as being a 5'6", 121 pound smaller stature girl and she would talk about how thin she was and how petite she was and she would use that route while other days she portrayed herself as a 300 pound dominatrix who was a disciplinarian. There were very different opposite routes that she was taking, but because she could hide behind a computer screen, she was able to create whichever character she wanted dependent on the day. Now, there was one character that she was frequently presenting herself as, and that is someone named Nancy Carlson. Sharon advertised Nancy as being someone who would do absolutely anything for anyone. It didn't matter how crazy the request was that she would take videos of herself for her customer, quote unquote. Again, we're unclear if she ever did, if she ever did take videos, if she ever did sell videos of herself. However, that is, again, how she was advertising and what she used the Nancy Carlson character for. Now, in these chat rooms, something that Sharon was doing, and it didn't matter which character she was for the day, whether she was the petite, more submissive, or if she was the dominatrix, one of the things that she talked about very frequently in these chat rooms was her desire and her fantasy of being tortured to death. Sharon was extremely explicit explicit and detailed in her descriptions of wanting to be tortured to death and it made other people in the chat room uncomfortable. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power 
power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. A lot of people in these chat rooms felt like Sharon didn't understand that there was a line and that there was a boundary and they felt like she was disrespecting that. They felt like she didn't understand the difference between fantasy and reality because a lot of people in these chat rooms, they just liked to talk about their fantasies. It was a way to get everything out that they were thinking about. It was a way to dream and fantasize. But for Sharon, a lot of people felt like Sharon didn't understand that concept. She took it too seriously and she took it too literally. And she was taking it to the step and the stage of saying that she wanted to be tortured, not just tortured, but tortured to death. And whenever Sharon was confronted about this, because many people did confront her in these chat rooms, Sharon would snap back at these people by saying that this is what she wanted, she should not be judged for it, and she did not ask for anyone's opinion. Now, a lot of these conversations started out in group chat rooms. So there would be multiple people in these chat rooms at once. And when Sharon would express her fantasy about being tortured to death, oftentimes the chats would move into more private chat rooms with just Sharon and one other person. However, oftentimes what would happen is that when these chats were moved into private chat rooms, the person on the other end would soon realize that Sharon was not kidding. She was taking this very, very seriously. A lot of people believed that, oh, Sharon is just saying this. That was the initial thought going into these private chat rooms. She doesn't really want to be tortured to death. However, after continuing conversation with her, it made people believe that Sharon actually did want to be tortured to death. And when that would happen, a lot of the communication would stop. People would stop communicating with Sharon. But everything changed when Sharon met 45-year-old Robert Glass. Robert Glass, who goes by Bobby, was 45 years old at the time and worked for a computer analyst for the government of Catawba County, North Carolina for nearly 16 years. Now, Bobby also had a wife for quite some time. He was married for 14 years until May of 1996 to his wife, Sherry, and together they had three children. Now, the reason that Sherry and Bobby got divorced in the first place actually was because Sherry became suspicious over Bobby's internet use. Now, Bobby being a computer analyst, it did make sense for Sherry that he would be spending a lot of time on the computer. However, once it started to get in the middle of their relationship, it started affecting the family. That is when Sherry decided that she was going to take it one step further and really take a look into what Bobby was doing on the internet. And when she did, she saw that Bobby was sending multiple disturbing messages using the username toy man and slow hands in in these fetish chat rooms and as a result of finding these messages sherry and bobby separated the night that sherry actually confronted bobby about her findings she claimed that bobby's face went completely white as a ghost he lost all the color in his face and she quickly realized that she did not fully know the person that she was married to for 14 years she realized that there was a part of bobby 
Bobby's life that Sherry was being completely hidden from. And the relationship did have problems leading up to that as well. Sherry said that towards the end of their relationship, Bobby actually told her that he was not attracted to Sherry anymore. And anytime Sherry would try and show affection towards Bobby, Bobby would push her away. So ultimately, all of those things is what led Sherry to end the marriage. Now, as you could probably guess, one of the people that Bobby was talking to in these chat rooms was Sharon. The two met in a chat room in August 1996, and through their messages, Sharon expressed her desire to be tortured to death by Bobby. Now, there were a total of approximately 900 pages of emails between Bobby and Sharon between August and October. So that is a total of 900 emails spread over about a little over two months. Now, even though we don't have access to these emails, because trust me, I have looked high and low, I knew that you guys would want to know the details of these emails. However, they've never been released to the public, and honestly, that is probably for very good reason. But Sharon was very descriptive in these emails to Bobby about how she wanted him to torture her to death. So after about two months of talking about all of this, Bobby and Sharon finally decided to meet. On October 13th of 1996, Sharon actually told Victor, her husband, because again, Sharon did still have a husband throughout all of this, she told Victor that she was planning on going to Georgia to meet up with a friend. Victor, of course, really didn't think much of it. He trusted Sharon, and Sharon got in her blue car and drove out to the train station, where she took the 9.15 a.m. train to North Carolina, which is where she arrived at around 8.45 p.m., so almost a 12-hour train ride, and Bobby was there at the train station to pick her up, and once he picked her up, the two began their 80-mile drive to Bobby's house. Now, Sharon would end up staying with Bobby for three whole days, and after three days of not hearing from Sharon, Victor began getting very anxious and worried about his wife. He hadn't heard from Sharon at all, which was very unlike her. However, on the third day, Victor actually ended up discovering a letter that Sharon had left him. In the letter, Sharon wrote to Victor saying that she was leaving him and, quote, not to go after her killer, end quote. She also put, quote, if my body is never retrieved, don't worry, just know I am at peace, end quote. Now, as you can imagine, when Victor found this letter, it sent him into an absolute spiral. You don't know what to think when you see a letter like that. This is not just a letter from Sharon saying that she was unhappy in the relationship and that she was leaving Victor, which would have been bad enough on its own. However, this is a letter from Sharon telling Victor not to go after her killer and that if they never find her body, not to worry about it. This is the first Victor is hearing of any of this. And so seeing this letter was definitely a shock. 
And after finding the letter, Victor ended up going through Sharon's emails. And that is when she saw the countless emails from Slowhand, aka Bobby Glass. Now, when Victor saw all these emails, obviously it was very, very concerning for him. However, part of him thought that none of this was real. He felt like Sharon was going to come back. This was all a big misunderstanding. So he ended up waiting a couple more days until October 20th to file a missing persons report. And when investigators saw the emails between Sharon and Bobby, they were definitely suspicious. The emails went into great detail about how Slowhand was going to sexually torture Sharon and ultimately kill her. Now, it was very hard for anyone to believe that Sharon would voluntarily go somewhere knowing that she was going to be killed. It was very hard for anyone to wrap their head around that concept because it seems beyond outlandish. It seems beyond comprehension that someone would voluntarily go somewhere knowing that they were going to be murdered. It just didn't make sense to anyone. So on October 22nd, the police actually located Bobby and they decided to surveillance him because they wanted to see if they could find Sharon with him. They wanted to see if Sharon was still alive. However, after surveillancing Bobby's house, they realized that Sharon was not with him. There was no sign of Sharon anywhere. So three days after their surveillance on October 25th, the police finally got a search warrant to go through Bobby's house while he was at work. Now, at the time, Bobby was living in a turquoise trailer that was described as being an absolute train wreck. Bobby was living in a house of clutter. There was trash everywhere, clutter everywhere. There were dishes piling up in the sink and on the counters. There were also drug paraphernalia spread all throughout the trailer and thousands upon thousands of computer disks were discovered as well. Now, while inside of the trailer, the police were able to locate some of Sharon's belongings, indicating to them that Sharon was there at some point. Inside of the trailer, they also discovered multiple pieces of bondage equipment. They discovered a 357 Magnum pistol, as well as countless pieces of pornography, including child pornography. So even though they found the gun, they found the child pornography, they find the drug paraphernalia, they find all of this inside of the trailer, there still is no sign of Sharon herself. That is until police exit the trailer and look forward about 75 feet and notice there was some newly placed dirt on the ground. Now, obviously this sparked police's interest and they walked over and began digging. And lo and behold, about two and a half feet underneath the dirt is where they discovered Sharon's body. And now that they had retrieved Sharon's body, they were able to finally make an arrest. Now, at the time, there were officers at his house, obviously conducting the search warrant and retrieving Sharon's body. However, there also were multiple officers at Bobby's place of work because they were surveillancing him there as well. And once the detectives that were surveillancing him at work heard that Sharon's body had been recovered, they were able to walk into Bobby's place of work and arrest him. And at the time that he was arrested, he was actually leaving the men's room and going back into his office. However, the police were able to catch him before that. 
And when Bobby was arrested, he did not say a single word. He was extremely quiet throughout the entire process. Now, when Sharon's body was recovered, her wrists and her ankles were bound by rope. She also had cuts and scrapes all over her chest, and there was also a rope around her neck. After an autopsy was conducted, it was determined that the cause of Sharon's death was strangulation. The medical examiner also concluded that she believed that Sharon died on the third day that she was with Bobby, so on October 16th. Now, when Bobby was taken to the police station and investigators began interrogating him, Bobby did confess that Sharon was with him and that they were spending time together acting out their sexual fantasies. Bobby explained that Sharon had asked him to tie her up using rope and sodomize her using objects around the house. He went on to explain that while the two of them were having sex, he took a rope and tied it around her neck, pulling as tight as he could, which is what ultimately killed her. Now, even though Bobby did confess to the murder, he claimed that he never planned on killing Sharon. And even though he did, he also claimed that this is exactly what Sharon asked for. Everything that they did was consensual and that Sharon had asked to be tortured to death. So Bobby is trying to explain to police that even though he did kill Sharon, this is exactly what she asked him to do and that he was just following her lead. Even though he did confess to it, he also claimed again that the murder and the killing itself was a mistake. He claimed that he never actually intended to kill Sharon. Even though she had asked him to, he was just going along for the BDSM part of the fantasy. Now, Bobby's attorney did try very hard to convince people that Bobby's story added up. Throughout the 900 pages of emails that were sent back and forth between Bobby and Sharon, it was clear that this was a consensual act. Along with that, Bobby's story does match up with Sharon's autopsy when it comes to the rope and the tying up of the hands and the ankles. This was all a consensual act. But this is where people get very, very torn in this case. A lot of people believe that even though Sharon stated that she wanted this to happen, she probably didn't fully understand that it is still murder and actually a premeditated one. So that was one side of the argument. You had people saying that even though she said she wanted it, you can't actually kill her. She probably didn't understand that she was really going to die. But then you have the other side of the argument where people are saying that throughout the 900 pages of emails, Sharon is practically begging for someone to torture her to death. She wanted to die. She knew the repercussions of her actions. And so... She even went as far as leaving her husband a message saying not to worry if they don't find her body and more specifically, not to go after her killer. Now, regardless of what side of the argument you land on, Bobby was still getting charged with murder. And not only that, he was also getting charged with possession of child pornography. Now, again, the big argument here, the big point of contention is whether or not Bobby should be charged with first degree premeditated murder, which again is something that I'm very interested to hear where you guys lie on this. But Bobby ultimately pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and sexual exploitation and was charged on January 27th of the year 2000 and sentenced to 36 to 53 
months in prison, not years, months. He was also sentenced an additional 21 to 26 months for these for the second degree minor exploitation of child pornography charges. So altogether, for everything that happened with Bobby, he was serving approximately a 4-year prison sentence. And it took a long time to get to that resolution because this case itself dragged on for approximately 3 years before a verdict was met. But even though Bobby was only sentenced to four years, he would actually never live to see the end of his sentence because he actually died from a heart attack on February 20th of 2002. Now, as you can imagine, the media had an absolute field day when it came to this case. They started labeling Sharon as a suicidal masochist. That was the term being used to describe Sharon in the media. And that is where, again, this argument of did Bobby deserve a first degree murder charge comes into play. And that is why, as I mentioned in the beginning, this case is very unique because it is not very often that you hear of someone asking to be tortured to death, asking to be murdered. Those types of cases are very few and far between. However, we did cover a case very similar to this during Halloween a couple years back, and it was the case of Armin Maywes. And Armin found a victim online who wanted to be killed in 2001. Now, after Armin killed his victim, he ended up eating him, which gave him the nickname of the Rottenberg Cannibal. Now, again, this case also brought up a lot of questions of consensual homicide. And is that a thing? That's the big question here. Is consensual homicide real? Because in Armin's case, again, he posted an ad online asking to kill someone and his victim complied. He came forward. He said, yes, I will agree to do this. And if that's the case, then is it really a first degree murder? Is it really murder or is it consensual homicide? But back to Sharon for a second. Sharon and Bobby spent two months together exchanging over 900 messages where she asked and again, practically begged him to kill her. And part of the reason I wanted to cover this case, as I mentioned in the beginning, is because I really believe that it gets you thinking because this is such an uncharted territory when it comes to true crime and when it comes to cases that we cover. Now, personally, if you want to know where I lay on this, um, I don't believe that Bobby had any right to kill Sharon. I believe that Sharon can say that she wants someone to torture her to death all she wants, but I believe that no no one has the right to actually follow through with that. I think that, you know, regardless of whether Sharon fully knew the capacity of what she was asking of, I don't believe that anyone should be allowed to murder someone. And if we are following Bobby's story where Bobby claims that he never meant to murder Sharon and he didn't think it was going to happen, why not call the police? Why not, you know, try and get help when you discover that Sharon's not breathing anymore? So if you didn't plan on murdering her, why not try and save her? But again, it almost counters and completely contradicts all of the messages that they exchanged with each other. So that is where I personally stand on the matter. But I am very, very interested to hear what you guys have have to say about it let me know in the comments below because again i think that this is a very endless conversation and one that doesn't really get talked about a lot we don't really ever hear or talk about consensual homicides but let me know if you think that that even exists let me know what you think 
But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Again, like I mentioned, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.